would you like to know? Well, you should listen. Zoom. Cron. Week in review. Listen closely. Zoom. Cron. It's gonna help you. Then think for yourself. What the hell happens? I'm gonna tell you. From my in perspective. In the Zoom Cron. In Zoom Cron. Week, week in, in review. review. Right now. Here's an independent journalist, Travis. William, William Skink Matier. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zoom Cron Week in Review. We are going to be looking at the week of June 26th through the 30th. It is June 30th, Friday, as I am recording this, about 6 p.m. It is getting finally hot again, acting like summer out here in Missoula, Montana, and this week, I've probably written the most I have written, put a lot of content out, not just writing, but of course, recording video footage, doing lots of stuff, lots of stuff. So thank you for following along. If you have been, if not, I'm going to talk about some of the posts, at least give the titles to the posts so you know what the heck happened from my perspective this past week. So Starting off on the 26th of June, we began with <laughs> when the wheel comes off and the Chinese masseuse doesn't speak English. That's right. In my strange, weird life, the wheel of my van can literally come off. Um, it didn't go rolling down the road. It stayed sort of within the wheel well, but it was a significant damaging sort of alarming experience on Reserve Street here in Missoula as I was driving and I was able to get my vehicle off the road thankfully but I knew it was pretty screwed and it was going to take a couple days I was certain since this was happening on a Friday so a week ago today it was going to take a couple days for me to get it towed I wanted to let the business know this critical piece of information so that they didn't wonder if maybe I was just going to you know start living in my van and start you know maybe put a tent up and you know, choose the spot for some urban camping. No, that wasn't going to be my plan. And I wanted to communicate that plan to the woman. But the woman who came out to see what was going on, she spoke zero English. It was Mandarin she spoke. And I further confirmed that when she was showing me her phone and I saw a lot of Chinese looking script language. That's not how you actually refer to that language. I'm just describing what I was trying to see and process as I was really kind of more worried about my van, but also simultaneously realizing perhaps I had stumbled onto a little node of a criminal conspiracy involving Chinese nationals. And so I put that into a post for Monday and it touches on, <laughs> touches on, it touches on the fact that there are actually a lot of Chinese nationals being arrested at the Southern border along with Russians. So I don't know if there is an infiltration going on. I know in Russia, I'm sorry, France, in France, there's a lot of stuff happening in the last couple of days in terms of a uprising, riots. A, I think a teenager was killed over in France, but we're not talking about France. We're talking about what's happening here in Missoula, Montana. So I'm going to try and not derail myself. That's a hint at a post coming up. So I would definitely go to zoomcron.com to get more into the details of what I'm talking about here. That's Z-O-O-M-C-H-R-O-N as in Nancy. Coming up next, 
We have June 27th. Are sexual deviants helping Mountain Lion get a new home for public buses? One funny note, in um, writing, I, I like to reread what I'm putting out there before I hit publish. I don't always catch the typos. I, oftentimes, it's after I've hit publish where I figure out I need to change something. I'm glad I didn't put out pubic buses. It wasn't pubic buses. We're talking about public buses here. That's a very important letter L that I, I missed initially. Luckily, did not hit the publish button before we had pubic buses in the home that they're going to be getting. So kind of ironic when you start thinking about the fact that multiple crimes sometimes happen in the bus. Assaults, um, public masturbation, which is not allowed. People, just not allowed. And so two former Mountain Line bus drivers, I had a chance to, to listen to them talk about their experiences at the Let's Improve Reserve Street Facebook group Tuesday public meeting. That's a public meeting, not pubic. And it was very, very informative. So I put some information together, including Corey Aldridge, the now CEO. He changed his title from something to CEO. This is, again, a public institution. Mountain Lion is a public bus transit system. But he's the CEO of it. And so it was a, it was a, oh, let me actually go to the post. I don't have the, the post up in front of me, so I can, I can change that. Because um, then I can remind myself of some of the details of what I've written about. So much happens in any given week here in Missoula, Montana. It really can be a challenge just to have re recall of what's happened on, on any given day. So, um, I, and I'm saying this as I'm scrolling through, trying to kill some time. Okay, here we are. So, as always, I have some nice images throughout the post so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, but when Mountain Line went zero fare in 2015, really this seems to be a overall scheme to increase the number of people riding the bus and therefore get more federal funding. So warm bodies, good. Sometimes the behavior of those warm bodies and what they do, not so good. But if you're just a guy named Corey looking at the numbers, wanting to make the numbers go up and up and up, much like the, uh, I'm not going to go there. So Mr. Aldridge, I'm hoping that you're listening to some of the public frustration and to kind of put the, the frustration in context. Um, I had another post that touches on some mountain line issues the following day. So we are going to get to that post next. And it's called the title trends, a dying hip strip and regional violence against people perceived to be homeless. I say perceived to be homeless because it's not all that clear that the street musicians who were brutally maced by a young woman who did not like them and expressed general hatred towards homeless people, it's not clear that the, the specific musicians who were attacked with the chemical weapon, I'm not sure if they're homeless or not. Um, the man, Brian, who, and I'm looking for his last name, I'm not sure if I actually have his last name in this post, but a 60-year-old man was viciously assaulted up north in Kalispell. That man uh, had a much more serious experience with that violence as he did not survive it. And so I mentioned in some public comments, which you can hear the public comments in full, less than three minutes at the post, I mentioned in Kalispell has just had their forced clay Salcedo moment. Um, and I also emphasize how important it is to really look at programs that may em emerge from tragedy. So here in Missoula, the Salcedo drop-in center was the result, ultimately, in terms of a policy result from the death of Clay Salcedo, who was beaten to death on the California Street Bridge, which ironically I've taken some footage of this week. Um, 
And so the Salcedo program, I was working within the Pavarello Center's various programs during the time as that program was launched and then as it failed. And so I could kind of give you some ideas on, on what was not working, but you know, that might touch on some important people here in Zoom Town. You wouldn't want to necessarily make them feel uncomfortable. So this is one of the barriers that we have to improving the approach to a very difficult issue, which is actually a drug crisis, not a homeless situation. There are very plenty of homeless folks, but the actual core of what's happening right now in Missoula, Montana, it's a drug crisis. There's also an economic challenge in opening and sustaining local, cool, funky, weird businesses. Um, and I say that not just as someone that's kind of uh, trying to do something like that myself with this media situation. <clears throat> uh, be looking for the brick and book media nook getting more official here soon, I hope. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the, the hip strip is a nice, funky little strip, or at least it used to be, of little tiny local shops just south of the downtown core. So the Higgins Bridge, renamed Bear Tracks Bridge, a lot of cool businesses have come and gone. I was actually a bit surprised to see that the two weed shops, one of them never really officially opened, two weed shops are now empty and the Legacy Lounge empty. I took a picture of a homeless guy taking a nap in his wheelchair in the storefront of the Legacy Lounge. That was supposed to be at the time some, I think, 18 and under, no alcohol, obviously, um, after hours lounge. Whoever put money into that idea, I'm sorry, that money is now gone. Um, as is a lot of the excitement and hipness of the hip strip. There, are, of course, are condos on 4th Street, very close by, by the, the Bridge Pizza. I was just at the Bridge earlier tonight. And the Bridge Pizza, yum, yum, yum. Thanks. If you want to sponsor a podcast, you can give me money. There's a lot of money going into development when it comes to condos in the Missoulian building. It's not the business there anymore, right by the Bridge Pizza, the Hip Strip. No, that building will be demolished eventually, and more condos along the riverfront will go up. Yay. So that was the post on Wednesday. That was, let's see, the 28th. The following day, the 29th, continuing my public comment campaign on a busy Wednesday full of committees before July 4th. Okay, so I'm getting confused. I've written so many posts this week that that is the one where there is actual um, public comments. Uh, and the public comments entail not just uh, situations with uh, the drug crisis, which I continue to bring attention to. Um, <clears throat> and I do that at the Budget and Finance Committee. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm going to take a little sip of my cannabis water. Ah, um, the, the budget and finance committee was the first public comment I made and well at the committee at which I, the public comment was made, I'm having difficulty speaking and I apologize. And then there was of course the second committee. There was many committees on Wednesday since they were squeezing two weeks of committee work in because the 4th of July holiday is coming up. But the second committee was the public works and mobility committee. And I wanted to bring attention to the mountain line situation, the former bus drivers, what they had to say, but more importantly, the leaning benches. Were they still there? Two of them, just two leaning benches. They were installed many years ago, not many, maybe more like, let's see, three, four. Uh, I, you can get those details at the post at zoomcron.com. 
But the leaning benches were a hilarious response to bad, bad behavior happening in and around the mountain line vestibules. So the little covered areas where people would wait for the bus to come pick them up and drop them off. Well, shit was going down, and it just happened to be around the Pavarello Center, the homeless shelter at which I used to work. Hmm, head scratcher there. So these leaning benches were installed. I provide a dramatic reenactment of a possible medical situation in which someone, who knows, I, I do have a person in mind, but let's just say you have a medical condition in which when you get stressed, you have to sit down suddenly or, or else you might just pass out and you could hurt yourself. Well, the leaning benches, as I discovered, weren't all that adequate at, at providing that, that service. And I don't think those leaning benches are Jedi approved. I'm not talking about science fiction ninjas on screen. No, that's not what I'm talking about. When I say Jedi, of course, I'm referring to the Jedi principles, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, by which our local officials claim to live by. Mountain Lion, Corey Aldridge, CEO, Mr. Mr. Guy. I don't know if, if Jedi principles are, are, are passing muster in those leaning benches, but you can go to zoomcron.com and you can see me try and sit in them. But we can't actually sit. You can only lean. <laughs> you know? Hence the name leaning benches. I also had a chance to talk to a former homeless client outside of Wardens, and that was fun because uh, someone working at Wardens came out concerned maybe I was yelling at the guy. I wasn't. I was just very excited and passionate about the shit I was the shit show I was describing to John. And uh, I, I made sure the guy understood that it's cool. You know, um, that business sells alcohol and people get rowdy sometimes. I wasn't myself drunk, but uh, the guy wanted to make sure to let me know, hey, man, there's 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 kids and families inside. Ooh, that that of course, I didn't just keep yelling when he said that. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to write up something <clears throat> and then I'm going to write up a little link to a post or a article from KGVO about a woman who was seen shooting up uh, with her syringe in her arm. So intravenous drug use. I think it was the daytime, but the father with the young child in the car who saw this was not too happy. What are what are our kids actually seeing and experiencing here in Zoomtown and in this country? Well, all kinds of shit, but you can go and read more about that post if you would like. Continuing on, we had Joey Thompson's death, death certificate information um, that was finally released. And so there was an article <clears throat> with a couple links to the coverage I've been providing since Joey went missing April 11th and then was found dead somewhere in the Clark Fork in Mineral County on May 4th. That continues to be a head-scratcher in terms of, hey, why can't more information be released to the public? Is there an investigation? I hope there is. Um, but no one calls me back on some of that stuff. The following post, why I'm supporting the temporary measure of homeless urban camping whack-a-mole in public parks. Lions Park was recently cleared out so that they can do shit like mow the lawn. Lots of trash is being accumulated. A lot of costs associated with these cleanups are, are starting to pile up. And it's just going to be whack-a-mole all summer long until the Johnson Street Shelter reopens. And then it's going to be a new complaint-focused uh, area to be frustrated with. And I'll be, of course, covering all of that as these things develop. I'm going to kind of move it along here because I want to get to the, the special reading that I have set up for, for you guys. The, the reading from Strange Angel, very excited, and it's going to connect to some of the last posts of the week. You material lovers of science don't want to know what I think is happening. 
June 30th. That was one of two posts that I put out on Friday, which is today. And it is touching on a very interesting figure in history, a figure who was involved in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, something that one of our own city council members, Brian Von Rocket Scientist, used to work at. Brian Von Losberg is his real name, and you can read all about it June 30th. Very interesting post. I begin, though, with a funny, funny comment. Uh, John Kevin Hunt, J. Kevin Hunt, one of my longtime commentators. He's a pal of mine. I like Mr. Hunt. We don't agree on some stuff, and I sometimes confound and confuse him. And he articulates this confusion in this comment so well, I decided to make it the focus of this first of two posts. So here is Mr. Hunt. You really hit the nail on the head, Ari, the attempt to marginalize Daniel. Of course, he's referring to Daniel Carlino. Then you fall off the rails in the remark implying that the climate emergency is a hoax. You are so right on so much of the time, dot, 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 until science is involved. Where does this rejection of science come from? Question mark. <laughs> Despite what your anti-woke buddies tell you, the climate emergency is not a matter of ideological perspective. Island nations suffer the same devastation from sea level rise, regardless of their ruling ideologies. I'm so glad, <laughs> I'm so glad Mr. Hunt talked about island nations. I was just at a MCT play earlier this evening and it was treasure island the ironies will not stop and i just would like to actually go see my kids perform in a play and not have things that are just synchronistic pop up that would be that would be nice i would get, like to get a break from that but i don't seem to ever get a break from that but mr hunt <laughs> oh we have fun i get into mr parsons the show i'm watching strange angel which is based on the biography and it just gets stranger and stranger. Like Elron Hubbard, the man that was involved in the Babylon workings with Mr. Parsons and Marjorie Cameron. This is happening in the desert, I believe, in Southern California in 1946. L. Ron Hubbard, who grew up in Helena, Montana. I only found this out recently. That is crazy. I've got some old L. Ron Hubbard books, um, especially Death's Deputy that he wrote that got me thinking about Sean Stevenson's father and some of these names you might not have the full context for, and I apologize. You really got to go to Zoomcron. You got to go to the upper right corner. There's this little search area. You can look this up. Go look up Sean Stevenson, and you will see many articles about what happened to him at the Pavarilla Center on January 3rd, 2020. And then, of course, he was removed from life support two days later in St. Pat's by the Missoula County Sheriff's Office because they're the corner, and apparently they can do that kind of shit. But all of these posts, not all of these posts, I'm sorry, these two posts on Friday touch on the many, many interesting synchronicities that are woven through my experience trying to understand what happened to Sean, to the man who allegedly assaulted Sean, John Lee Perry, who was shot also by the Missoula County Sheriff's Office in the back out in Southside Road. All of these things I would like to understand, but so much crazy things continue to happen, like interesting synchronicities. Um, the newspaper that I took a picture of had actual queer joy as the main focus. So our state rep, Zoe Zephyr, and Zoe's girlfriend, Erin, were pictured. And in the upper left-hand corner, there's something about the train derailment and asphalt. Well, I get into what asphalt means to me, having watched the show, Strange Angel. And wouldn't you know, I got a very interesting text from Sean, Sean Stevenson's father, Dr. Kenneth Stevenson, he had noticed that that headline 
didn't understand though what had been going on with the synchronicities and so I got a chance to give him an update yesterday and he told me some things. Not everything can always be disclosed. There's a time and a place. So much is happening, but I definitely recommend going and looking into the very interesting links, synchronicities, all kinds of fun stuff to explore. And then apparently Tim Sheehy, uh, himself a Navy guy, just like L. Ron Hubbard, and also the CEO of Bridger Aerospace, well, he just announced that he's going to be one of the Republican candidates trying to unseat Senator John Tester, who is himself backed by music people like Pearl Jam. I think there will be a future post getting into some of that, I'm sure. The second post of Friday, this one was titled, um, let's see, I have to scroll up, Six Degrees of Jeffrey Epstein, Missoula Edition, featuring submarines, stickers, and a crazy occultist who dreamed of making a moonshot. When you see this one image, you're going to be like, oh, I've seen that before. It's actually Andre the Giant's face, sort of stylized by this artist. And this artist has interesting connections, like he did the poster that's very famous about Barack Obama, also helped stylize the flag for Terra Mar, which was a project now defunct by Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine, of course, was the procurer of young women for Jeffrey Epstein. And of course, it didn't just stop at that. How could it? With her dad being Robert Maxwell, you got Israel, you got espionage, all kinds of fascinating things. And then somewhere in there, Brian Von Rocket Scientist, our own city council member. What did he do at JPL for NASA? Well, I'll just read this quick little bio. Brian Von Lossberg served on Missoula City Council from 2014 to 2021 and as council president throughout his second term. He championed local policy around renewable energy, climate change, and acquisition of Missoula's water utility. Brian consults regarding renewable energy policy and was the campaign coordinator of the Solarize Missoula Residential Installation Program. Woo! Formerly the executive director of Montana's Alternative Energy Resource Organization and the Tahoe Baika Institute in California's Lake Tahoe area. He has an MS in environmental studies from the University of Montana. Earlier, Brian was an engineering manager at Semiconductor Equipment Maker Applied Materials and at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he worked on the Hubble Space Telescope repair mission and the 1997 Mars Pathfinder program. He has a BS in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. Brian, his wife, and their daughter live in Missoula's north side. Isn't that just amazing? Of course, we're not just talking about Jack Parsons. We're talking about JPL. There's also Frank Molina, and we will be hearing a little bit about Frank in the excerpt that I read from the book, Strange Angel. Lots of fascinating stuff. It just keeps going and going. So if you want to read more, you can go, or if you want to know more, go to zoomcron.com and check it out. So now, coming up, you're going to be listening to me reading a book this is Strange Angel. It's a biography about Jack Parsons. Very synchronistic indeed. And then afterwards, there's going to be a poem. I'm going to read a poem. It's not going to be accompanied by a ukulele, I don't think. Well, we'll see what happens. But this poem has been written this week, and it's, it's something. I tell you what. It's not for kids to listen to, though. A lot of naughty, naughty words. We're not talking about Jack and Jill anymore, people. Um, it's getting crazy out there. So... Thank you for tuning in. This is Zoomicron Week in Review. I'm your host, Travis Williams skink Stay tuned. More coming up next week. And have a happy, safe 4th of July weekend. Adios. All right. So for this Week in Review's book reading, I'm going to not do in retrospect this week. I'm going to instead read from 
Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons, otherwise known as Jack Parsons, written by George Pendle. Um, this was put out and published by, let me take a look, Harcourt Incorporated Press. Um, uh, copyright 2005. Here we go. So I opened this book at random and found a section that I'm just going to start reading now. And Jack Parsons, for those that um, aren't aware, if you want to go to zoomcron.com, you can read about some of the interesting context and synchronicities that I bring to this very fascinating topic. Now, here's an excerpt from Strange Angel. Without Parsons' knowledge, the FBI had been investigating his past for months, presumably ever since he had started work on the Army-sponsored Navajo Missile Program at North American Aviation. Parsons' clearance had not been reviewed since his work at Galsit during the war. Now the old Pasadena police reports about the goings-on at 1003 had been unearthed, and someone had charged that Parsons had ties with, quote, an alleged Communist Party member. He was immediately listed as an undesirable employee for national defense work. North American Aviation suspended Parsons from his job immediately. He wrote a panicked letter to Carmen, pleading his case. Quote, As you know, I am not a communist and have no connection with communists or communist front organizations. I have no idea for the reason for this action. Possibly it is simply because I am not enough of a rubber stamp personality. Under these conditions, I feel that it is desirable to leave this country and to begin a career elsewhere in a more liberal atmosphere as soon as possible. I will greatly appreciate any advice or suggestions that you can offer in the matter. I am really anxious to make the change as soon as possible. End quote. To make matters worse, Candy left him a month after he had lost his clearance. Since she had returned from Europe, their relationship had grown increasingly tempestuous. She had gotten bored playing the role of scientist's wife in Manhattan Beach, and she now planned to go to Mexico to join the artist colony in the town of San Miguel de Allende. Living there was cheap, and the location was beautiful. It's 16th century houses encircled by mountains. Many Americans supported by the GI Bill were now traveling there. San Miguel was renowned for its fiesta atmosphere, its heavy drinking, its bullfights, and its peyote. Parsons was now left alone, without job, friends, or wife. He began pumping gas at a filling station on the weekends and working as a mechanic fixing cars. He also worked as an assistant in a medical hospital, and he even briefly held a staff position in the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Southern California. He may have won the job because of the expertise he had acquired manufacturing narcotics at home. His closest friend, Ed Foreman, had also fallen into similar difficulties. Quote, after Aerojet, he had a really hard time doing anything for a while. End quote. Remembered his stepdaughter, Jean Ottinger. Quote, I can remember him sitting up on the roof just flying kites. Unlike Cornog, both men lacked the academic qualifications to fall back on serious theoretical work. Parsons became even less likely to attain them when he failed out of his mathematics course at the University of Southern California. Once again, he turned to his magic. If he could not control the real world, then at least he could assert himself in his imaginative magical one. He embarked on a series of magic rituals, hiring prostitutes or entering into passing affairs in order to carry out his sex magical workings, his sex magic workings. 
His new magical endeavor was called the Crossing of the Abyss, and its aim was to transform him into a master of the temple. At that point, his consciousness would supposedly become one with the universal consciousness. The last of Crowley's disciples to attempt the operation was a Canadian accountant named Charles Stansfield Jones in 1916. He had declared himself master of the temple shortly before being arrested for walking naked through the Vancouver streets. Parsons carried out his rituals over some 40 days of what he described later as madness and horror. Thoughts of death and suicide possessed him. When he finished, he began frantically writing. Twelve years earlier, he had collaborated with Frank Molina and Edward Foreman on a scientific paper called Analysis of the Rocket Motor. Now he was writing Analysis by a Master of the Temple, a histrionic autobiography that recreated the story of his entire life so that his one moment of magical achievement was its climax. Becoming a master of the temple allowed Parsons to recast all his disappointments and failures as successes. His parents' divorce, his isolation as a child, his interest in chemistry, the loss of the family fortune, and his betrayal by Betty all appeared as predestined steps on his path to magical fulfillment. He also began writing a political tract on liberalism and liberal principles, which he titled, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. In it, he responds to his treatment at the hands of the government by denouncing the increasingly intolerant nature of post-war American society. However, Parsons' remedy to the problem is not social or political reform, but the arrival of Babylon. Quote, Girt with the sword of freedom. He sought out Wilfred Smith, his former mentor, and declared that he, Parsons, was the Antichrist. His mission, quote, that the, way for, that the way for the coming of Babylon be made open. Wow. It seems symptomatic of some form of psychosis that as Parsons' emotional life had been thrown into chaos and his professional achievements retreated further into the past, he should cling to his magic as if it were a raft on a raging sea. His writings of this period contain oblique expressions of deep self-loathing, as well as repeated references to all-consuming flames as, and his own death. Parsons seemed to be casting himself in the role of doomed hero in a cosmic drama that was coherent only to his own mind. Alienated from the OTO, separated from his wife and friends, he seemed to be preaching to himself, declaiming to an empty room, playing to the void. This period of mania seemed to have eventually worn off, and as 1949 arrived, Parsons seemed to settle himself. He set out, newly determined to regain his security clearance, and consulted with his old friend, Andy Haley, who agreed to appeal his suspension. Had Parsons' freshly written Manifesto of the Antichrist been discovered, Haley's efforts would likely have come to naught, you think? But the document remained secret. After a closed court session in which Parsons denied any communist affiliation and defended his involvement with the OTO as a non-political religious organization, the Industrial Employment Review Board reversed the restriction on Parsons' security ranking, claiming the previous judgment had been made without sufficient cause. He was granted back pay and fully restored to work on classified and top-secret projects. Parsons was now back in the real world and functioning with remarkable lucidity. <laughs> Carmen had also made efforts on Parsons' behalf. The Hungarian professor had close ties with the American Technion Society, an increasingly powerful organization providing American technological knowledge to the fledgling state of Israel. Huh. Carmen had been involved with the society since its foundation in 1945. With his aeronautics connections, 
Not to mention his links to the commanding general of the United States Air Force, which helps, you know. He had played an instrumental role in Israel's creation of an Air Force. Now he put Parsons in touch with Herbert T. Rosenfeld, president of the Southern California chapter of the society. Rosenfeld was a powerful figure who routinely brokered multi-million dollar contributions from eager donors in the United States to the Israeli government. He met with Parsons and explained Israel's desire for its own rocket program. Naturally. He asked Parsons to write a proposal for an explosive plant in Israel, and he requested data concerning rockets and other armaments. If Parsons proved he was competent by providing these reports, Rosenfeld would help him leave the United States, as he wanted, and he could open up a whole new chapter in his life, building rockets in Israel. Aww. Since regaining his security clearance, Parsons had left North American Aviation and moved to the Hughes Aircraft Company in Culver City, the company owned by the increasingly reclusive millionaire Howard Hughes, where he worked on chemical plant design and construction. The job put him in an ideal position to gain data from his Technion pr proposal. By midsummer, Parsons had handed over several reports to Rosenfeld, all of which were forwarded to Israel for approval. It seems unlikely that Parsons provided any classified material to Rosenfeld. Why, after all, would a man who had just fought so hard to regain his security clearance risk losing it again? Regardless, it was an inauspicious time for an American scientist to collaborate with a foreign power. The writer, L. Sprague de Camp, had followed the Hubbard-Parsons drama from afar. Ooh, Hubbard. So now we get L. Ron Hubbard coming into this, and I'll see... How much, um, I will read just a little bit more, but L. Ron Hubbard and, uh, or I'm sorry, L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons ended up doing something called the Babylon Workings, this magical workings, um, I believe in 1946. So let me uh, read a little bit more from, from this. This is, um, I'm now at page 287, so I will continue reading this. <clears throat> the writer L. Sprague de Camp had followed the Hubbard-Parsons drama from afar. Now, visiting California, he wanted to meet the scientist-magician he had heard so much about. He wrote to Robert Heinlein for help in arranging an introduction. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the time, Heinlein was working as technical advisor on the film of his story, Rocket Ship Galileo, now retitled Destination Moon, Hollywood's first attempt to give the public a realistic glimpse of the science of rocketry and space travel. Quote, I think he is browned off on the OTO, Heinlein wrote to DeCamp about Parsons, but he may still have some belief in it, i.e., you may find yourself dealing with a convinced cultist. Anyway, he conceded, Jack is one hell of a nice guy and a number one rocket engineer. Parsons fulfilled DeCamp's expectations. DeCamp was taken by this, quote, big, florid, good-looking, youngish man with the indefinable aura of inherited wealth who drove an old, <clears throat> an old open Packard with a loose door wired shut. DeCamp was researching a book on magic and the occult, and the two spent much time talking together about magic and science fiction. When DeCamp asked Parsons about his dealings with Hubbard, Parsons was in good humor enough to admit that he had received a letter from an irate Hubbard offering him Betty back. He then told DeCamp that he had summoned his wife, Candy, through magic. <clears throat> when DeCamp asked where she was now, Parsons re replied ruefully, I think she's in Mexico getting a divorce. An authentic mad genius if I ever met one, declared DeCamp afterward. The admiration of an occasional visitor, however, was not enough to ease the isolation that plagued Parsons. Quote, he was kind of lonely at that time, remembered his friend George Frey. He got tired of living alone. 
Down in San Miguel de Allende, Candy had cultivated a coterie of lovers, both men and women, including a local nobleman and a bullfighter. Parsons saw nothing of her apart from the occasional fleeting visit. To alleviate his loneliness, Parsons acquired a semi-permanent girlfriend, an Irish girl named Gladys Gohan. That's quite a name. He decided to move into a new home with her, a home that might remind him of his childhood. The home of 1200 Esplanade stood on the seashore on Redondo Beach. Complete with crenellations, Moorish arches, and window framed, windows framed with stained glass, <clears throat> the house resembled a Gothic castle. It was, however, made completely out of concrete. It was as if Parsons' love of epic grandeur and magniloquent gesture had been distorted in a funhouse mirror. <laughs> Those who visited called it the Concrete Castle. When Candy made one of her rare visits to her husband and found his girlfriend installed in the new house, she paid no heed to her. George Frey, slightly concerned, asked her what she thought of the arrangement. Quote, I think she gives the place a nice feminine touch, deadpan to Candy. <laughs> Parsons' joy at seeing Candy again swiftly dissipated as the two began arguing ferociously. Candy finally left for Mexico once more, and an, and, an embittered Parsons initiated divorce proceedings against her on the grounds of extreme cruelty okay i will read just a little bit more i'm going to take a pause and and fully clear my throat one moment okay continuing a rocketeer reunion took place in pasadena on june 6 1949 frank molina had returned to the united states from france to visit his old friends and family he brought with him his new wife marjorie oh whom he had met while working at UNESCO. Andy Haley threw a lavish party on Orange Grove where the drink and arguments were as copious as ever. In the midst of the celebrations, Haley coaxed Parsons up onto the little balcony in front of his bedroom window, as he had done so many times before. He demanded to hear the hymn to Pan once more. Parsons took his position and began to declaim. This time there was there were no thrown bottles, no jeering. Everybody stood silent as Parsons recited the verses he had recited so many times. I'll read this. The great beasts come, I o pan, I am born to death on the horn of the unicorn. I am pan, I o pan, I o pan, pan. And it goes on. Uh, I'm not going to continue reading that. Parsons finished the final line and a silence fell over the group. They no longer laughed at Jack being peculiar. Instead, they recalled more glorious, more innocent times, a world where the moon was the limit. I shall never forget Jack doing this, Melina recalled many years later. It would be the last time he saw his old friend. Melina left America early on June 15th. He, he did so just in time. This, that same day, the Los Angeles Times front page led with the headline, Frank Oppenheimer admits he was red. With Sidney Weinbaum, Oppenheimer had presided over the communist salons that the Rocketeers attended before the war. Now the newspaper told how Oppenheimer had joined the Communist Party while he was working on his Ph.D. degree at the California Institute of Technology at Pasadena. A few days later came the announcement that along with an accusation against Weinbaum, the committee had information indicating that Frank Molina, identified as a former secretary of the Aerojet Engineer Corp at Pasadena, was a Communist Party member, and that Communist cell meetings were held at the Oppenheimer's and at Molina's home. This is fascinating. In early 1950, Klaus Fuchs, a German-born physicist who had worked on the development of the atomic bomb in Britain and the United States, pleaded guilty to charges of passing scientific secrets to the Soviet Union. 
He was imprisoned for 14 years. Soon, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg would be arrested for passing secrets from the Manhattan Project to the Soviet Union. Scientists, the heroes of the last war, now appeared as enemies of the state. Parsons looked on in despair. Quote, science, science that was going to save the world back in H.G. Wells' time is regimented, straightjacketed, scared shitless. Its universal language diminished to one word, security, he lamented. Huh. He must himself had been scared, have been scared. Rosenfeld had fallen ill and Parsons negotiations with him about a move to Israel had broken down. Since regaining his security clearance, Parsons had been interviewed by the FBI on several occasions about his links to Weinbaum's communist group. Parsons had initially prevaricated, saying that the meetings he had been to in 1938 and 1939 were in fact study groups and dealt with many isms other than communism. Now, however, he told the FBI that Weinbaum held extreme communist views and knew of the existence of a communist group on the Caltech campus. In a climate of rumor, such words were proof and clinched the FBI's case against Weinbaum. On June 16th, Sidney Weinbaum was arrested for perjury. He had signed a Caltech security form stating that he had never been a member of the Communist Party. The reasons for Parsons' betrayal of Weinbaum are not entirely clear. The threat of losing his security clearance again must have weighed heavily upon him, considering the depression his lost job had provoked before. Perhaps he thought Frank Oppenheimer's confession had already doomed Weinbaum, or perhaps Parsons still harbored a grudge against Weinbaum for breaking up the discussion group he and Molina had founded all those years ago. In any case, Parsons was not the only member of the Suicide Squad, that was the name of their group, to be troubled by the FBI. Martin Sommerfeld, or Sommerfield lost his security clearance for his affiliations with known communists, and even the respected Carmen came under investigation for his links to Bela Kuhn's communist regime in Hungary in 1919. Cien, however, became the most spectacular casualty. He had recently returned to Pasadena to become the first Robert Goddard's professor of jet propulsion at Caltech. Following a grilling by the FBI about his alleged communist sympathies, his security clearance was revoked almost immediately. At a time when 90% of all research at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was classified, he could no longer hold his prestigious position. Sien, sp spelled T-S-I-E-N, made plans to travel back to his Chinese homeland, and when the government discovered his decision, it moved swiftly to stop him. Customs officials searched his packed luggage and discovered papers marked secret and confidential. Many of these documents were written by Cien himself, and it must have seemed natural to him to take them. But the day that Sidney Weinbaum was sentenced to four years without parole for perjury and fraud, Caltech's famed Dr. Cien was arrested and held without bail. He was forbidden from leaving the country for five years so that his scientific knowledge would become obsolete and therefore useless to China's new communist regime. As his old friends and acquaintances rapidly fell around him, Parsons contacted recovering Herbert Rosenfeld and renewed his efforts to move to Israel. Rosenfeld greeted him warmly and asked for one last piece of information. If he provided it, Parsons could leave for Israel immediately. This final proposal was very simple indeed. Rosenfeld wanted a detailed breakdown of equipment costs for the Jet Propulsion Development Program and Explosive Plant and explosives plant proposal that Parsons had formulated the previous year. Such costs were easily calculated by consulting similar proposals Parsons had been working on for Hughes. He took a bundle of handwritten documents concerning explosives and rocket propellant manufacture from his office and gave them to Blanche Boyer, a female colleague from Hughes, asking if she could type up copies of the material for him. Confident in his plans for the future, he had even included within the bundle tentative points for a two-year employment contract he was planning to give to Rosenfeld. 
Unfortunately for Parsons, in light of the increasingly hysterical press coverage of red scientists, it seems that the sight of these documents sent Boyer into a panic. No sooner had Parsons gone than she alerted the security authorities at Hughes to a case of possible espionage. On September 26, Parsons was fired from his job at Hughes for removing confidential papers without permission, and the FBI descended upon him yet again. He told them everything. He told them about the Technian Society. He told them about Rosenfeld. He told them about the papers he had already submitted to Israel. He claimed that he was only preparing a cost breakdown from the papers he had taken from Hughes. He swore that he was going to submit the proposal to the State Department and insisted that he wanted only to transfer the cost of equipment to Israel, not the classified material. He pleaded that his action was an oversight, a slip-up. His carelessness caused... <clears throat> His carelessness caused his past life to be exhumed once again. As the FBI prepared to prosecute Parsons for espionage, they interviewed old friends and enemies, seeking evidence that he was a spy. More stories about his antics at 1003 <clears throat> crept out of the woodwork. An unnamed source claimed that at a weekend party, he was drugged and initiated into the order against his will. <clears throat> Others described Parsons as a crackpot and a religious fanatic. One source focused on his relationship with Candy, describing them as an odd and unusual pair and that they do not live by the commonly accepted code of married life and are both very fascinated by anything unusual or morbid, such as voodooism, cults, homosexuality, and religious practices that are different. Some of Parsons' scientist friends rallied around him, explaining that during his time at Caltech, security regulations had been very lax, and it was common practice to remove reports for one's own purposes. But the evidence against him was overwhelming. Making matters even worse, Herbert Rosenfeld himself was under investigation by the FBI for his links to known Soviet agents. When Parsons was pointedly asked about his own political affiliations, he furiously asserted that he was not a communist, but an individualist. With the wealth with the wealth of information collected against him, his declaration was futile. Parsons could do little but wait for the investigation to be over. He became increasingly disturbed. He talked to George Frey about the FBI, referring to them as the Black Brotherhood. He became convinced that the man living in the, in the next-door apartment was spying on him. Just be careful what you're saying, Frey remembered him whispering. The apartment is bugged. The one thing he was certain of was that his chance for escape to Israel was gone. Okay, well, I will leave it there. That is um, a nice lengthy excerpt, very fascinating excerpt from Strange Angel, written by George Pendle, about the otherworldly life of rocket scientist John Whiteside Parsons, or a guy simply known as Jack. Thank you so, so much for tuning in this week. I will probably be concluding with some sort of ukulele tune and come back next week. Thanks again. Jack and Jim Ode. I am Jack. I am Jim. Echoing a deranged hymn. Pronoun wars, you fucking bores. Spirit soup, just mix it in. Under Lego Rocket sits a mythic con from movie shit. Fuck the science fiction cloak. Fuck the blood and organ smoke. H.G. Wells, Shelley's Beast. Fuck the famine of occulted feasts. Elrond, Red Dong, fuck the bells. Pavlov's slobber, fuck their hells. Where they place their cattle, us. And lobotomize if there's a fuss with stupid stories of nano dust. Come on, people, check your gut and ask yourself, who do you trust? Targeted fables, gang-stalked lives, Elon puts minds into hives. 
Predictive fun, you love the show. You sit before a bad blue glow and manifest and co-create with shipwreck brains that can't relate anymore to natural things when imploding timelines hit quantum strings. The fitted shirt, the pile of hurts, trauma mamas and dads who flirt. Kiddo, can I sell your junk and prime libidos for their trunks? Chakra clogging evil maps and motherfuckers with many hats who avatar with cartoon glee. The right kills God, the left just me. Is that why stars are so lonely? AI won't cry and works for free. Sun Sky Jack and Moonsick Jill stopped to fuck upon the hill, but only after popping pills with blackjack orbs and wombs that kill. Jack, how bad in 46, a big old rip you couldn't fix? Then in June of 52, the movie bang and away you blew. Books and bricks I build and build, buy more high scores, nothing fills, skin to fullness so I float, to bite my tongue and sow no oats. Is it working, or will you spill the drips of fire blood refills? But I'm not Jack, nor am I Jim. I don't quack or swim with fins, crows that lie, and loves that craft. God, I'm tired. They're fucked up math. It's slow to plus, but fast subtracts. This from that and you from me, like I used to live on melody. But somehow, Lord, I've come to mount. With megaphone, I pound and pound. Like it's Friday at quadruple X. Upon eight wheels and dressed my best. The shit I spit ain't for the faint. These days, it's fuck your noise complaint. It is now 6.30 on a Friday. The weather is nice. I think the batteries in my megaphone are still packing enough punch. Hmm. Thanks for tuning in. Follow next week. I'll be bringing you lots more from Zoomcron.